You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is episode 20, Krupp Steel Part 3, Fritz Krupp, or the Jeffrey Epstein of the Second Reich. Today I'm recording from the Garten House in Essen, and just a reminder, this episode brought to you by Otis Elevators. When you rise, we shine. In Karl Marx's work, The 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, he famously wrote, Men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. When it comes to the Krupp family, that's certainly true. Alfred Krupp was suited to run his family's foundry and build the family business into an international concern. And when the times changed, a new type of owner was required. Fritz Krupp, Alfred's son, was born 1854 to 1902, and he was just the type of man uniquely suited to bring the Krupp empire to new levels of prosperity. And now would be a good time to to note that Alfred Krupp forbade any of his descendants to ever make the company into a public stock corporation. For almost the entire history of Krupp, of the Krupp concern, it was either a sole proprietorship or a privately held stock company. And at this juncture, I believe it was still a sole proprietorship. So, Alfred Krupp did not want his son to have an unhappy childhood as he had had. Inadvertently, though, that's what Fritz received, an unhappy childhood. Due to his parents' decayed and atrophied marriage, his parents' hypochondria, and Alfred's suffocating nature. Fritz was interested in zoology, but he did not get to indulge this interest until later in life. Fritz Krupp did not receive any advanced education because Alfred thought that the best schooling he could possibly receive was to act as Alfred's secretary and archivist. As we mentioned last episode, Alfred was perpetually writing letters, memos, rules, and lists and he made his son act as his secretary and personal historian. And remember, Alfred was very prolific in writing these. Alfred said, quote, The best I can hope and do for Fritz, and I believe it will be more valuable to him than his inheritance, is to advise him to collect and file all my writings, so that he will always know the spirit and ambitions of my career, and save himself much anxiety, provided that he accepts with confidence what I myself, with equal confidence, have written down and wanted him to understand. Unquote. Fritz, on the other hand, hated being his father's secretary, since Alfred would spend literally hours and hours a day composing memorandum on the most asinine topics. Fritz would get writer's cramp, and he was so desperate to escape that he joined the army. Theoretically, this was the perfect escape, since It directly related to cannons in the military, since joining the army would directly relate to the Krupp concern, so Alfred Krupp could hardly object to his son becoming an officer. A few weeks in, though, Fritz was kicked out of the army for the following reasons. Short-sightedness, asthmatic attacks, and corpulence. That's right, Fritz Krupp was a short-sighted, asthmatic, large son. Fritz, of course, was very upset at being stuck back as his father's secretary, and Alfred, clueless as ever, welcomed him back with a present 
of reams of paper and a box of new pencils. Reportedly, this caused Fritz Krupp to sob bitterly. One upside to having such an overbearing, obnoxious, and capricious father was that it trained Fritz Krupp in deception and in masking his emotions. Now that sounds pretty messed up, but it seems to have worked for him because Fritz would end up being gifted at high-level business negotiations, diplomacy, and espionage. Some of the worst disagreements between Alfred and Bertha Krupp involved arguments about Fritz. Bertha felt like Alfred was trying to take him away from her, which was probably true. Their biggest fight came in 1882, when Fritz Krupp found someone he wanted to marry. Bertha left her spa resort in the Riviera and returned to Via Wegel, a place she hated, and she asked Alfred Krupp to let their son Fritz get married. Also, let's be clear here, Fritz was like 27. It's not like, it's not like he was too young to be getting married or something. So, let's set the stage here. They're in their big stupid mansion, Via Wegel which we described in the last episode. Bertha Krupp basically didn't live at Via Wegel. She was almost constantly staying at spas. Their marriage was on the rocks. She stayed at Via Wegel. She basically never stayed at Via Wegel. And the scene was Alfred playing dominoes with his team of business managers called the Procura, and Alfred Krupp had just lost a game of dominoes. Apparently, Alfred was a sore loser and would often accuse his opponents of cheating. Imagine being made to play a game with your boss, and then your boss would become like a petulant baby and accuse you of cheating. Anyway, that is when Bertha Krupp dropped the news on Alfred, and Alfred was upset, so he turned away and would and just and just refused to discuss Fritz's possible marriage. Understandably, though perhaps not strategically wise, Bertha kept pushing and asked him for a final answer. Alfred shouted, Nein! Bertha then went upstairs to pack, and, her, and a servant let Alfred know that she was packing up everything she owned and that she was leaving him for good. Alfred ran up the stairs and saw that Bertha was leaving him, and he tried everything. He begged, he scolded, he yelled at her, threatened her, but nothing worked. As she left, Alfred reportedly shouted, Don't be foolish. Think, Bertha, what are you doing? They were to be the last words he would ever say to her. Bertha had left Alfred more or less permanently, though divorces were still verboten, so they would remain technically legally married for the rest of their lives. Well, that got Alfred to consent to the marriage. And although they didn't know it at the time, Alfred would only have four more years to live. Now, it's not certain, but it seems likely, especially due to later information, that it was probably Bertha rather than Fritz who picked out Fritz's wife. The Baroness Marguerite von Ende. She was a very sheltered woman, which is not necessarily uncommon back then, but she was perhaps more sheltered than was even common at the time. Like, for instance, Marga, <clears throat> Marga didn't know that babies were born naked, and it goes without saying that she didn't really know much about sex. 
Unfortunately, that would end up magnifying the tragedy of her life. Although, I don't know if sex education would have prevented any of what happened. We'll get into it a little later on. On Fritz's wedding day, his mother Berta attended the ceremony, and then afterwards, Alfred held their reception at their castle. Oh, did I forget to mention their castle? The Krupps also bought a castle, apart from Via Wegel, because why not? At the castle, Alfred welcomed them with a, with a formal congratulations speech, which, of course, necessitated Fritz having to, having to transcribe the whole thing. No time off being Alfred's secretary, even if you're the groom at your own wedding. As Alfred gave the speech, almost immediately the speech veered off, off of the subject at hand, which was his own son's wedding, and it went right into one of his favorite pet topics. Which is to say, attacking that overrated Saxe-Weimar shyster Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. That's right, Alfred Krupp hated Goethe. And I don't really know why. It doesn't really make sense to me in the context of his life, and I could never really figure it out, but he really hated Goethe. And, of all things, he chose Fritz's wedding day to trash on Goethe in front of a large audience of people. And there, of course, was Fritz, stuck, writing furiously, trying not to fall behind on his transcription of his dad's invectives. Because he kept record, we know exactly what he says. I will quote a portion of Alfred's speech here. I don't care how great a philosopher Goethe is supposed to have been, or how many other people dispense with vast quantities of worldly wisdom and respect for society and the overbearing masses. I don't give a fig for any of them. Those who stare at their navels and emit the judgment of idiots, no matter how highly they may be regarded elsewhere, make gutter snipes of themselves, and that is my opinion of them. So far as I am concerned, in conducting my business, I pay no attention to their hogwash. I go my own way and never ask anybody what's right. Now, for my money, there is nothing funnier than that scene. Just equal elements of tragedy and farce. I wish I could make a movie of it. I think it would be... It almost has, like, Ianucci vibes. I don't know. But another tragicomic thing is that Alfred Krupp seemed to hate his new daughter-in-law, and he didn't seem to like his own grandchildren. He would call them vermin, which is a pretty good indication, in my mind, of how miserable he was towards the end of his life. I mean, what kind of grandfather doesn't like his own grandchildren? It's just bizarre. We got a good insight into him being the silent recipient of his father's accidental abuses. He was, Fritz Krupp was, perhaps unsurprisingly, also a hypochondriac, although he fixated on germs rather than bad air, which certainly reflects the changing of the times. For my money, it goes to show how germophobia is mostly fake because, and people are just neurotic. Their neurotic beliefs are based on whatever the current mode of understanding is based on. Like previously, his father was afraid of bad air, and Fritz, of course, was afraid of germs. Now, Fritz was under a lot of pressure, basically his whole life, and he perpetually looked older than he actually was. By his 30s, his hair had turned gray, and he got even fatter. 
While Alfred was still running the business, Fritz was slowly eased out of the personal secretary role, and he struggled to find a niche for him to occupy in the business that was otherwise dominated by his father. Ironically, though, there was a niche that there was a niche that Alfred was not good at, and that's the domain that Fritz carved out for himself. The niche he found was as the foreign expert and intermediary with international arms dealers. He referred to himself as Krupp's foreign minister. Alfred was never good at was never good at or particularly interested in these things, and it's where Fritz had room to shine. Fritz created and maintained contacts all over the world, like in Beijing, Buenos Aires, Rio de Janeiro, Santiago, and all the Balkans capitals. He built strong contacts with all the arms dealers of the era. He kept files on all those arms dealers, and he also kept abreast of new developments in munitions companies. He basically slotted himself into the burgeoning intelligence role that Krupp was beginning to have need of and to play on the international stage. One example of Fritz's new role was the time that Sultan Abdul Hamid II of the Ottoman Empire gave Fritz a message to give to Bismarck, and he gave it to Fritz because the message was too delicate to be passed through normal diplomatic channels. It was some issue where they wanted Germany to back them in their dealings with the Kingdom of Bulgaria. Sultan Abdul Hamid II has been called Abdul the Damned. He was a polygamist, he was a pretty bloodthirsty dude, and he exterminated various peoples. He helped put in place the policies that would lead to the Armenian Genocide just a few years later. So this sort of back-channel negotiating happens all the time. But Krupp being one of those channels underscores how important Krupp was becoming. Now when Alfred died, the Procura, or the family's business managers, they thought that Fritz was a fail son who couldn't and didn't want to take over the family business. None of them realized that Fritz had become a shrewd and assertive businessman with his own agenda, and he quickly asserted his control over the family business. Fritz made two major moves early on. First, he had them buy into a railroad steel company that his father had been feuding with. Second, they signed a contract with Rudolf Diesel, the inventor of the diesel engine. Apparently, the early diesel engines needed to be built mainly using steel, and this contract proved to be very lucrative for Krupp. People love to compare and contrast leadership styles, especially when it's a father and son situation like this one, and people have pointed out that Alfred Krupp was more of a builder, while Fritz was more of like an exploiter. Alfred Krupp built a lot of the raw infrastructure, a lot of the physical buildings, but it was Fritz who would ensure that contracts were actually profitable, that deals would actually go through, and that things were utilized correctly. What's more, Alfred Krupp was more of a feudal lord when it came to his employees, but Fritz took a much more hands-off approach. Where Alfred loved to write memorandum, Fritz hated it, and he would more often than not simply not put his thoughts into writing. Fritz also started using more modern versions of public relations against his workers and the general public. 
and it literally never occurred to Alfred Krupp to do that. Fritz Krupp would expand the Bismarckian social welfare system. He would open more schools, roads, and libraries, and cultural venues, all with an eye towards improving production and buying off his workforce, of course. Also, I probably haven't made it very clear the scope and scale we're talking here, but the Krupp company was growing steadily all this while, and that includes an SN2. And at this juncture, the Krupp company was the landlord for literally 43,000 people in Essen. Like, directly their landlord. Not through shell companies or anything. They ran the educational system, the police, the fire department, the butcher, the baker, and literally the candlestick maker. I'm not making this up. They owned 92 different grocery stores, slaughterhouses, flour mills, hotels, clothing mills, shoe factories, clock factories, furniture factories, all mainly for their workers. They even ran a housekeeping school to teach young brides how to, how to make their husbands happy and productive Krupp workers. Even the Bibles and Essence churches were all stamped personal property of Krupp. Maybe the most interesting thing to me is how Fritz set up the town's telephone exchange to link up with the Kaiser's Imperial Network, older forms of the future surveillance state to come. Around the turn of the century, successful experiments were being carried out on treating steel with nickel, which makes steel stronger and reduces corrosion. This allowed for more powerful and less corroded cannons for the Navy. It also allowed engineers to take full advantage of Alfred Nobel's new, more powerful gunpowder recipe which was shattering both Ron's and cast steel cannons. Regarding weaponry, the Krupp company was sprinting into the modern era. Nickel steel was the advance that really made Krupp indispensable to Prussia, and brought Kaiser Wilhelm II close to Fritz Krupp. And this was ironic, because just as Fritz was finally free of Alfred Krupp and his endless bloviating opinions and lengthy letters, he found himself dealing with the Kaiser, who was all of those things. Now, Kaiser Wilhelm II and Fritz Krupp were friends, and the Kaiser loved to come and inspect Krupp factories and stay with Fritz at Via Wegel. Also, as a side note, saber-rattling is kind of a stock statement or a cliché, but I didn't realize that the Kaiser would literally, would literally take his saber and rattle it constantly, which is where the term came from. Now, at this time, there were allegations in the press that Kaiser Wilhelm II was a secret shareholder in the Krupp concern. Based on what we know now, it does not seem likely that this was true, but they did have such a close relationship that the speculation doesn't seem unreasonable. During the Boxer Rebellion in China, the Chinese were using Krupp weapons against the Prussians, which caused some public outrage and the Kaiser's displeasure. Fritz defended the company, pointing out, perhaps fairly, that they had sold the Chinese older model weapons, and that it was also not the Krupp company's fault if rebels took the weapons they, gave, they sold to the Chinese Imperial Army. Still, yet again, here Krupp weapons were killing Prussians. Notice that this keeps happening, of course, with ensuing public outrage, but 
companies can pretty much get through it because public outrage is usually not damaging enough to take down companies most of the time, especially when the public is not really the ones buying these goods in the first place. Like, the public isn't buying Krupp cannons, right? So here's something I found out about. I didn't know. I guess I never thought about it. But international arms dealing didn't start in, like, the 1980s or something, right? There have been international arms dealers about as long as there have been arms worth selling, if you think about it. But what's crazy to me is that old-timey international arms dealing does kind of resemble modern arms dealing, which is super interesting. Let's get into it a little bit. So Krupp, so the Krupp company's main competition in terms of weapons was Vickers, a British steel company based out of Sheffield that also got into arms and munitions, right? And so each of these companies had their main go-to guy as an international arms dealer. Now, the Krupp concern's main guy was Friedrich Wilhelm von Bülow, and the Vickers company's man was Sir Basil Zaharoff. So, Sir Basil Zaharoff was literally the inspiration for the James Bond villain Ernest Stavro Blofeld, who is in turn perhaps more recognizable as the Austin Powers character Dr. Evil. Friedrich Wilhelm von Bülow, not the Napoleonic general by the way, so this Friedrich Wilhelm von Bülow, I verified, is in fact in the same Von Bülow family as Klaus Von Bülow, the well-known convicted wife murderer who famously hired Alan Dershowitz and who ultimately got acquitted upon appeal. Now, if you ever want to take a real black pill on the U.S. ruling elite, look into Klaus Von Bülow's time with J. Paul Getty. Anyway, this Friedrich Wilhelm Von Bülow would go on to have a son, who would be a corrupt director and a convicted war criminal. Also, for what it's worth, Klaus von Bülow comes from a different line. He's not a direct descendant of these von Bülows, but same family nonetheless. So, getting back to our story of dueling international arms dealers, in the 1890s, von Bülow had bought up almost all the armories from Turkey, Portugal, and Italy, and he was trying to sell them to Spain. He had to compete with Sir Basil Zaharoff, who I think I might definitely do an episode on in the future. Zaharoff was born in Greece and fled to Russia after the anti-Greek pogroms of 1821. He made his wealth, rearming the Greek government, and he went on to sell weapons to many countries for various firms, including Vickers. He was famous for bribing war ministries, but since he was doing it on behalf of Vickers, England made him a Knight of the Grand Cross of the Bath and a Doctor of Civil Laws at Oxford. Zaharoff and von Bülow were battling over who could bribe the Spanish army the most and win the contracts. And at a certain point, almost every Spanish officer above the rank of Major was on the dole, receiving either Krupp or Vickers bribes, or sometimes both. Apparently, Zaharoff went 
and bought Krupp weapons and then sold them to the rebels in Cuba. And then Zaharov went to King Alphonse XIII with the fake evidence that von Bülow was selling to the rebels. So Zaharov got the contract instead of von Bülow. At least, that's probably what happened. Now, there are so many interesting things about these two, but we gotta stay focused on Krupp. Needless to say, Sir Basil Zaharov got so rich that he became an incredibly important figure in the British ruling class, while von Bülow, certainly not destitute, did not become as powerful or important in Germany. So, every year, the Krupp company was coming out with newer and better munitions, like chrome-plated bullets and new new alloys. And at every point, they would sell those munitions to the Prussian government, knowing full well that they were developing new technology right around the corner. So if we're listing off crimes against the state, that would be one of them. Also, Fritz Krupp donated heavily to the Alldeutsche Verband, the Pan-German League, and also donated to the Flottenverein, which was the Navy League, which had a hundred thousand members, paid lecturers, and a magazine, Die Flotte, the fleet, which flooded the empire with chauvinistic literature. Sure, Fritz might have had some patriotism, but this was also business, since he directly, since he directly profited from any increases to military spending. But, also, you remember what we talked about with regards to the Navy and intelligence? The Krupp company negotiated and received cost-plus pricing for all of their military contracts, which means that the actual costs are included in the price, plus a certain amount above that for overhead and profit. When it comes to government contracts, this can often mean that the company literally can't lose money. And for much of Krupp's history, they were looking at gigantic profit margins. Even crazier, the Krupp company was now pretty much inventing military technologies without being asked, or even without their permission. For example, they pretty much invented submarines without the Navy's input or interest. Since the Krupp company had learned to innovate rather than deliver what the military was actually asking for. On the business side of things, Fritz ran the Krupp concern for about 15 years, ending suddenly with a series of incidents that we are about to get to. The SPD, the German Social Democrats, they hated Fritz Krupp, and it's not hard to see why. He owned a castle, a gigantic mansion, a giant mansion, and several more houses. He made death machines, He advised the warmongering Kaiser, he oppressed his workers, and he would hold lavish feasts where the rich upper class and royalty would act in a depraved manner. Here's an example. In 1898, Fritz held a party for the occasion of the ascension of the Prince of Wales as King Edward VII. In attendance was the Kaiser, as well as King Carlos, King Leopold, the mass murderer and pedophile, by the way, Emperor Franz Josef of Austria, and so on. I quote from a newspaper that reported on the event. Krupp gave a luncheon at the Hotel Bristol at 1 p.m. Sunday for about 250 guests. 
Nearly all cabinet ministers and many members of the Berlin aristocracy, including a large number of politicians, were present. Separate at the table were laid 10 to 12 people sat at each. Every setting was flanked by a miniature ship tastefully decorated with violets or by a tiny gun loaded, not with lethal shot and shell, but with violets or other flowers. After the meal, guests were treated to a special performance by entertainers from the Central Theater and the Winter Garden by Tyrolean yodelers, an Italian concert group, and Negro minstrels. Herr Krupp is in the enviable position of paying taxes on an annual income of 7 million marks. Unquote. That's right, folks. Negro minstrels performing for the royalty of all Europe. But, hey, at least back then, industrialists actually paid taxes. Now, to be fair to Fritz Krupp, Fritz's doctor didn't allow him to drink or smoke or eat very much, so he, would act- so he hated these banquets, which is another sign that wealth and luxury is often wasted on the rich. Are you sitting down, dear listener? I might recommend it, because we're going to close out the episode with a wild ride. Content warning, by the way, for the rest of the episode. To get some spice out of life and to make up for his unhappy childhood and unhappy middle age, Fritz started to travel to the Mediterranean, specifically Italy. First he was visiting Naples, because he was interested in Anton Dorn's zoology work. Dorn had set up the world's first zoological research station, the Stazione Zoologica, and Fritz contributed to it financially. And, in a classic example of pay-to-play, he also helped conduct research there. They outfitted cruise ships to go on expeditions to the coast of Naples, Salerno, and Capri, where they identified a long list of new species. Fittingly, Fritz discovered five new kinds of marine worms, perhaps the species that resembled him most. Fritz enchanted started funding improved deep-sea diving equipment and decided to spend each winter and spring in Italy, specifically on the island of Capri, starting in 1898. Now, this sounds nice, right? I mean, a rich guy, but he's spending some money funding science. Not the worst thing in the world. And Fritz was finally able to do something he actually wanted to do. Namely, research into marine biology. Sounds pretty good, right? But that's not all he started exploring. You see, Fritz Krupp was an ardent pederast. Now the discovery of the fact goes something like this. On the island of Capri, Fritz liked to stay at the Hotel Bristol. Mind you, that's the same hotel that hosted all of those other royal members and had the Negro Minstrel Show, right? So he liked to stay at this hotel, which was owned by a German named Konrad Uhl. Uhl thought it was weird that when Fritz came to Capri, he would put his wife up at a different hotel. Then, Fritz approached Uhl and let him know that every once in a while, he would be receiving young Italian men at the Bristol Hotel. They were his protégés, he said, and he asked if Uhl could employ them as waiters. He said he would be happy to pay for their wages, of course, but in exchange... He asked if they could be released from their duties when he was in town to provide him with companionship. Now, Uhl 
a hotelier with years of experience, knew that some measure of indulgence needed to be taken with expensive guests. And he agreed, but he had no idea how bad it would get. The boys who came were very young, did not speak any German, and had no real skills or ability to serve as porters or pages or cook's assistants, much less waiters. In other words, they were a disaster as employees. Then, when Fritz Krupp came to visit, it was worse. All the boys would crowd into his suite and the hotelier could hear pretty clearly what they were up to, which convinced him he needed to approach the Berlin police. He contacted the criminal commissar Hans von Treschkow of the Berlin police, and he opened what is now called the Krupp case. The Krupp case would even shake the Prussian throne. I'll quote William Manchester here. To grasp the full implications of Fritz's diversions, one must appreciate the peculiar status of male homosexuality in the Second Reich. It was the vilest of offenses, and paradoxically the most prestigious. Under the notorious paragraph 175 of the German Penal Code, anyone remotely associated with inversion was an unspeakable criminal, subject to a long sentence of hard labor. That was what had driven Uhl to Treskow. Friedrich Alfred Krupp of Essen was his star guest, but he had placed the Hotel Bristol in a hideous position. As nominal employer of Krupp's passive lovers, Herr Uhl was in the eyes of the law a pimp for deviates. Perhaps the Cannon King could survive the scandal, but the humble hotelier faced ruin. The police commissioner was not particularly surprised, as he had already run several hundred major investigations involving Germany's upper class, and he had seen it all. Also, as a side note here, I must of course clarify that while today we pretty rigorously separate homosexuality and pederasty, and there was that distinction back then too, it was more blurred than it is today, and in much of the reporting of the case, then and now, it was reported as if Fritz Krupp was guilty of homosexuality, when that is not at all what was happening here. Also, the Krupp family, and incidentally also Wikipedia, uncritically state that Fritz was persecuted for homosexuality, which is not true. Now, the way this was viewed at the time was in the context of sodomy being known abroad as the German vice. And at this time, all three aides-de-camp of the Kaiser were homosexuals, as well as his private secretary, his court chamberlain, his best friend, and his military commander. Realistically, probably the Kaiser as well. In this same era, the king of Württemberg was in love with a mechanic, the king of Bavaria was in love with a coachman, the Archduke Ludwig Victor, who was the brother of Austro-Hungary's Emperor Franz Josef, was in love with a Viennese masseuse who knew him by the endearing nickname Luzzy Wuzzy. In short, the Second Reich was incredibly gay. It was so gay to such a degree that it would probably come as a surprise to all but the most interested history enthusiast. Now, to be clear, the vast majority of the relationships I just cited were homosexual rather than pederastic, which feels important to note given Fritz Krupp's predilections. I quote from Manchester again. In Treskow's files were intimate descriptions of mass fellatio orgies among the officers of the elite Garde du Corps regiment. During one party on the estate of Maximilian Egon zu Furstenberg, 
General Count Dietrich von Huslen Hasler, the chief of the Reich's military cabinet, appeared in front of the Kaiser dressed in a pink ballet skirt and rose wreath. The general's ramrod back dipped low in a swan-like bow, then he whirled away in a graceful dance, as the assembled officer corps sighed passionately in admiration. Hulsen Hansler circled the floor, returned to the imperial presence for his farewell bow, and then, to the Kaiser's horror, dropped dead of a heart attack. Rigor mortis set in before his brother officers realized it would be improper to bury him in the ballerina skirt. They had a terrible time stuffing a stiff corpse into the dress uniform. Still, everyone had to agree that he had danced beautifully. So basically, through studying history, I've learned that Thomas Pynchon's incredibly bizarre sex scenes in Gravity's Rainbow were not parody at all. That's how weird things are in real life. Also, yet again, I have to note that having fun with the fellas and abusing young boys is quantitatively different. And I feel the need to point this out just because it shows how the Berlin police were already used to covering things like this up. In fact, one of the main jobs the police had at the time was to protect its most distinguished citizens from blackmail, which was very common. They kept carefully alphabetized lists of, German, of Germany's most famous deviants and their behaviors. In case you were wondering why yes, this also meant that the government had the ability to blackmail its most prominent citizens. Why do you ask? Now, the way it worked was affairs between the upper class, between upper class men themselves, was generally allowed if kept discreet and was considered safe, at least until the Krupp case. But Fritz Krupp here was breaking two cardinal rules of the era. He was having sex with lower class boys, and he was doing it out of the realm of the control of German police. Fritz's lovers slash victims did not have anything to lose by talking, and the German police could not intimidate or silence them easily because they were not in Germany. The police commissioner attempted to get the Kaiser to authorize some kind of intervention, but the Kaiser refused. Meanwhile, Fritz seemed to be getting more flagrant each season, so the hotelier Konrad Uhl kicked out Fritz and the boys. Fritz Krupp switched to the Hotel Kisisana, whose owner had more clout with the local politicians and who apparently did not mind pederasty. This hotelier recommended that Fritz contribute to some local charities, build a road across the island, and give out presents to the citizens of the island in order to buy some goodwill, which he did. I quote from Manchester again. Then, in the words of a fellow expatriate, he let himself go, according to one of his German friends. Fritz Krupp on the island enjoyed cheerful conversation, jesting, and even more boisterous amusement. That was one way of putting it. A grotto was transformed into a terraced, scented Sodom. Favored youths were enlisted in a kind of Krupp fun club. Members received keys to the place, and as a token of their benefactor's affection, either solid gold pins shaped like artillery shells, or gold medals with two crossed forks, both designed by Fritz. 
In return, they submitted to sophisticated caresses from him while three violinists played. An orgasm was celebrated by skyrockets, and now and then, when the boys were intoxicated by wine and crept with his passion, the love play was photographed. That was careless of Fritz. Prints were hawked by a local vendor of pornography. From the pictures, it was clear that some of his companions were mere children. Even worse, his grotto, the hermitage of Fra Felice, was regarded as semi-sacred, and he had dressed its caretaker in the robes of a Franciscan monk, thus deeply offending the local clergy. This seems to have been his undoing, though an English writer living on the island believes that the Italian authorities decided to intervene after jealousy erupted between two youths, and one, feeling Krupp wasn't paying enough attention to him, went to police on the mainland. The surfacing of the scandal is rather hazy. What is clear is, in the spring of 1902, after an extensive investigation by high-level carabinieri, the government of Victor Emmanuel II asked Fritz to leave Italian territory and never return. I quote a passage from the book The House of Krupp, saying, Krupp had brought a grotto in the southern part of the island, a grotto that had once been the home of a religious recluse called Fra Felice. Hitherto unapproachable except by sea, Fritz had had a private road cut to it, which the local people came to call Strada Krupp. He had transformed the place with terraces, pillars, statues, flowers, and bushes, and had had golden keys made to fit the lock of the gate leading to it, keys which he distributed among his closest companions on the island. Fritz used to refer to the grotto as a holy place of a secret fraternity of devout mystics, which he had created and whose membership he alone controlled. So, the Italian carabinieri didn't care about protecting the Krupp name, and the Italian media didn't particularly care about that either. And eventually all of Italy was talking about Fritz's crimes. So, it seems perhaps fitting that Fritz was visiting England, another pedophile island, when the news broke first published simultaneously by Avanti, the general newspaper of the Italian Socialist Party, and Propaganda, the regional socialist newspaper for Naples. Both published lengthy accounts of Krupp's actions, and both made it very clear that the crimes involved pederasty, not merely homosexuality. Now, someone anonymously sent Marga, Fritz's wife, newspaper clippings of the articles. Marga took the first train to Berlin and went straight to the Kaiser, who expressed his extreme displeasure with her. That's right, the Kaiser was upset at her. Then the Kaiser met with his advisors and suggested that the Krupp concern might need to be taken over by a board of trustees. Guess who vigorously disagreed? Admiral Friedrich von Holmen, who argued that the Krupps stood for absolute authority vested in the family's senior male. If you violate that, you would be setting a precedent. And the next thing you know, someone would be proposing that the Reich be run by trustees, and we can't have that. The Kaiser was not sure what to do, so he took no immediate action regarding the Krupp concern. But they did put Marga into a mental institution, saying she was suffering from hallucinations, and was in urgent need of prolonged treatment by an institution for nervous disorders. The family history now says that she was taken to Baden-Baden to visit a spa, but every servant in the house saw her dragged off by orderlies to the mental institution. 
the German press was starting to report the story. First, a Catholic newspaper made vague reference to a major scandal involving a great industrialist of the highest reputation who is intimately connected with the imperial court. Fritz Krupp considered suing the Italian newspapers, but he also chose to revise his will. His lawyers have advised against suing because they did not have the backing of the Italian government. His lawyers thought at the time that they could lie low and perhaps no German newspapers would dare publish the story with his name. But guess who wrote in and published a direct attack? Vorwarts, the newspaper of the German Social Democrats, the newspaper with the widest readership in the country. They published a front-page headline, Krupp auf Capri. Krupp on Capri. The article read, For weeks, the foreign press had been full of the shocking details about the Krupp case. The newspaper continued saying Krupp was the richest man in Germany whose yearly income since the Navy bills had risen to 25 million and more, who employs over 50,000 persons in his works, indulged in homosexual practices with the young men of the island. The corruption took on such proportions that certain candid photographs could be seen at the establishment of a Capri photographer. The island after Krupp money had paved the way, became a center for homosexuality." Vorwarts reported the investigation of an, Italian, of an Italian police inspector, the deportation of Fritz, and the possibility of further developments. Quote, as long as Krupp lives in Germany, he is subject to the penal provisions of paragraph 175. After perverse practices have resulted in an open scandal, it is the duty of the public prosecutors to take legal action." Unquote. Notice, unfortunately, that Vorwarts is not making it terribly clear how young the boys were, which is part of the reason why the Krupp family was later able to frame this as a case of a persecuted homosexual. Fritz Krupp planned to sue Vorwarts for criminal libel. Immediately, though, across the country, that edition of Vorwarts had become a collector's item and the authorities were seizing every copy they could find. At all of Krupp mines and factories, Fritz put up a notice that read, A Berlin social democratic newspaper has recently published insults and insinuations of a disgraceful character against Herr F.A. Krupp. It is hereby announced that at the request of Herr F.A. Krupp, criminal proceedings are being taken in open court against the responsible editor, by the Royal Public Prosecution's Office in Berlin. Judicial orders have also been given for the immediate confiscation of the Berlin newspaper and other papers which reproduced the article. So, there was a real chance that the Prussian government could have taken this as a pretext and opportunity to crush the SPD, the German Social Democrats, because, this is, no, this is important, the Social Democrat newspaper didn't actually have any proof of their assertions. The Italian government had it, and the Italian government probably wouldn't give it to the Social Democrats to defend themselves. There was a very real possibility that this could have been the pretext for crushing the Social Democrats at this point. Luckily, the wind blew the other way, and Alfred either decided to die at a very convenient time, or he committed suicide or he was murdered. You decide. Would it surprise you that there are major discrepancies and weirdnesses regarding both the final day of his life and his death? 
also, for what it's worth, he died on the 22nd of November, which just so happens to be the day that JFK was assassinated. Not that that's significant, except that it's interesting, right? So, the official story that went out over the German newswire said, Via Wegel, November 22nd, Excellence Krupp died at 3 o'clock this afternoon. Death was due to a stroke, which he suffered at 6 in the morning. His doctors said they observed a cerebral hemorrhage, but the doctor's stories didn't all match up. And the doctor's stories did not match with other accounts from servants and visitors at Via Wegel. On top of that, there was no autopsy, and then Fritz was buried in a sealed casket with no one seeing his corpse, not his friends or family or business directors. There's the real possibility that he was shot in the face or something, or that he didn't die. Although speaking personally, I think he probably had a medically assisted suicide. One newspaper asked, Has the knowledge of his own guilt compelled him to take his own life? His death became a political issue. Der Tag, the arch-conservative right-wing daily, published an inflammatory obituary headed Barbarism, declaring that the SPD had made Fritz a haunted animal. And this was a widely accepted interpretation of the events. One American newspaper wrote, But for savage attacks upon him by the socialist press, his life would have been prolonged. William Manchester wrote, Marga had been released from her asylum as soon as the German news agency's bulletin reached them. In keeping with the general atmosphere of unreality, no one thought it peculiar. Her sanity had been restored by word of her husband's unexpected death. Now, who was Fritz Krupp's chief mourner? It wasn't his wife Marga, nor his children, but the Kaiser, who appeared in full battle dress, accompanied by a host of officers. With the Kaiser at the funeral were no less than six known closeted homosexuals, and probably several more they clearly identified with Fritz and his fate, and unfortunately, they did not make that distinction between homosexuality and pederasty. Now, Marga Krupp made her lawyers drop the charges against Vorwarts, and for years, every newspaper would periodically publish reports from travelers who claimed to have seen Fritz Krupp in America, in South America, in Jerusalem, and in the Far East. So, let's back up and take it from the top. Alfred Krupp tortured his son through being an obnoxious blowhard, but I didn't get any vibes that he was physically, sexually, or intentionally emotionally abusive to Fritz. But he did make Fritz's childhood simply awful. Then we saw how Fritz Krupp was able to slot himself in as foreign minister to the Krupp concern and made connections to international arms dealers, which was a major source of revenue for Krupp at the time. Then we talked about the scope of Krupp ownership of Essen, which was approaching ridiculous proportions. I mean, they owned absolutely everything in the city. Then we talked about the world of late 19th, early 20th century arms dealing, which people sometimes think is a relatively modern phenomenon, but it isn't. And who do we see but ghouls like the Von Bülow family and Sir Basil Zaharoff occupying these roles? Very shadowy people, very curious. 
And of course, we're faced with Fritz Krupp's weird resonances with Jeffrey Epstein, and to a lesser extent, Walt Disney and Aleister Crowley. I will elaborate. The parallels with Epstein, while not one-to-one, are many. A very rich predator who uses an island as a getaway to engage in pedophilia more or less freely? Check. A rich man buying off the public with charity and public works? Check. A rich pervert buying his way into interacting with scientists? Check. In other ways, Fritz Krupp was different. The Krupp Fun Club with gold pins sounds like the Mickey Mouse Club. Not that I am implying anything. Do not look up what happened to Bobby Driscoll. Parody. Parody. Then, what are we to make of Fritz Krupp calling his grotto the Hermitage of Fra Felice and dressing up a caretaker as a Franciscan monk? Like, what's up, man? What What are you doing? What What's going on here? And calling it a holy place with a secret fraternity of devout mystics. Now, these aspects of the story sound like Aleister Crowley with his Abbey of Thelema at Cephalu. This aspect of it also sort of rhymes with Epstein's weird temple structure on Little St. James Island. And of course, there's the reality that Fritz Krupp made child porn, something which Jeffrey Epstein probably also did. To say nothing of, you know, Walt Disney or Aleister Crowley. Do your own research on them is all I'll say. So, I think we're forced to confront the fact that deviant, predatory sexuality is much more common than we realize, particularly among the ruling class, and they all seem to head in the same direction. It seems like, to obtain high levels of power in society, you end up either being or being made to be sociopathic. Then, once you have obtained functionally unlimited personal power, It seems like there's a tendency to start ritualizing your predations and even making it into a spiritual practice. On a long enough timeline, there might even develop a secret religion for society's elites. I don't know, just a thought experiment for you, hypothetically speaking. One final note, regardless of today's politics, who was on the right side of of the Fritz Krupp debate? That's right, the SPD, the German Social Democrats, Not the Kaiser, not the right, not the center, which went whichever way the wind was blowing. Just something to keep in mind. Now, today I used the book The Arms of Krupp, The House of Krupp, and Blood and Steel. Thank you for listening, dear listener. As always, just show a friend the podcast if if you're liking these vibes. I know this isn't exactly a fun episode, but uh, showing it to people, that always helps. And I need to be on my way. I'm headed to the Reichstag. See you next episode. And God bless. Durch Deutschland geht ein tiefer Riss, der spaltet die Nation. Ne Neuheit ist das nicht gewiss, doch von Interesse schon. Das Beispiel Krupp und Krause klärt den wirklichen Verlauf. Der deutschen Spaltung zugehört als Klassenfrage auf. Denn Krupp ist Monopolherr und Krause ist Polit, das ist der Klassengegensatz, den jedermann versteht. Herr Krupp
Druck der Boss der Industrie im Club der reichsten Herren. Besitzt Fabriken, Zechen, die viel tausend Mann ernähren. Als einer von zigtausend Mann steht Krause Tag für Tag in Krupps Fabrik zur Arbeit an sein Stundenlohn fünf Mark. Denn Krupp ist Monopolherr und Krause ist Polit. Das ist der Klassengegensatz, den jeder Mann versteht. Was krausisch pünktlich produziert, ist mehr als fünf Mark wert. Der Mehrwert wird von Krupp kassiert, weil dem das Werk gehört. Und tausende Kollegen geht's wie Krause jeden Tag. Herr Krupp nimmt sich den Mehrwert stets als Kapitalertrag. Denn Krupp ist Monopolherr und Krause ist Polit. Das ist der Klassengegensatz den jeder Mann versteht. Ist Konjunktur und angespannt der Arbeitsstellenmarkt, wird Krause Partner Krupps genannt, denn dann ist er gefragt. Doch ist der Wirtschaftshimmel trüb, die Auftragslage flau, dann droht den Krauses im Betrieb Entlassung, Lohnabbau. Denn Krupp ist Monopolherr und Krause ist Polit, das ist der Klassengegensatz, den jedermann versteht. Die Spaltung hier in diesem Staat erklärt sich folglich so, was Krupp an Macht und Reichtum hat, ist Krauses Risiko. Im anderen deutschen Staate, da gibt es die Krupp nicht mehr. Da sind die Krause selbst für wahr die Herren der DDR. Damit sich Krupp nie wieder dort etablieren kann, strebt Krause für die DDR die an. 